Hello there, stranger. I like the cut of your jib. Welcome to our very first podcast from Beyond the Pale here in the west of Ireland. We've been here for just over a year now. It is fascinating to be a Brit in Ireland during this period of Brexit. I'm myself of distant Irish descent via a great-great-grandmother born in Dublin around 1815-1816 who emigrated to the east end of London before the Great Famine, otherwise I might not be here. As you can hear, I'm a Brit with an obvious English accent, living mostly in this rural part of the west of Ireland in North Clare about six miles from the Atlantic Ocean. Local Irish folk here have been very friendly and welcoming, for which I'm eternally grateful. Ireland is the third most popular destination for UK citizens choosing to migrate and settle in other EU member states. Estimates of how many UK citizens live in Ireland range from 140,000 to 300,000, while about 400,000 Irish citizens live in Britain. There's been a sharp rise in the number of British nationals looking to become naturalised Irish citizens. In fact, a five-fold increase. 529 British nationals became naturalised Irish citizens last year, a jump from just 51 people in 2014. This is thought to be due to Brexit, Brits wanting to keep a foot in the EU. The cost of buying almost anything and the general cost of living in Ireland is higher than in the UK. The cost of household insurance, car insurance and road tax for a van or car is much higher. There is no free banking with the exception of one account I found offered by EBS Bank. All banking services apart from that are charged for and VAT in Ireland is 23% compared with 20% in the UK. In small local shops in rural Ireland, the service is wonderfully friendly, very helpful and charmingly slow. Everyone likes to chat. You can be 10 minutes waiting to pay for your grocery while the old lady in front of you at the till finishes her conversation with the shopkeeper. However, in supermarkets, the concept of customer service is way behind the UK. Don't expect anyone to offer to help with packing your bags if you do a big shop. And customer service with companies you phone up can be infuriatingly bureaucratic. If it is possible to get through at all, which in the case of EIR Telecom, it is not. There are other things in Ireland which can best be described as overly bureaucratic or positively arcane. Though I'm not clear how much of this is due to over-diligent enforcement of EU regulations and how much to an Irish cultural obscurantism, which could be considered endearing. The Irish are refreshingly disrespectful of authority. 
particularly anything reminiscent of British colonialism and the Anglo-Irish ascendancy. At the same time, there is a cheerful matter-of-fact fatalism in the Irish character, perhaps originating in the Roman Catholicism of the country or from the Celtic mists of ancient Ireland. Of course, any generalisations about people or national characteristics are just that, generalisations. And the same no doubt applies to generalisations about the English. In the United States, at least, the English seem to be regarded either as upper-class toffs, with stiff upper lips, or cheerful cockneys who like to say bloody and bugger a lot. Go blimey, strike a light, gov, that type of thing. There certainly are some Irish people who are no more sanguine about EU rules and regulations than the British who voted leave, and they would like to see Ireland out of the EU. And anyway, what are the alternatives? For example, the currency is abandoning the Eurozone to return to the Irish punt or pound, even an option. I don't think so. A closer relationship between the Republic of Ireland and the UK also seems understandably unthinkable, considering the hundreds of years of English and British colonialism towards Ireland and the Irish, culminating in the 1916 uprising and the Irish War of Independence, the setting up of the Irish Free State and then the Irish Republic. Hello, this is Jane. I'm very, very pleased to talk to you today. I'm living in the area of Lisdunvana in County Clare, in the, in the region called the Burren. It's absolutely wonderful. You need to come and stay, take a while, take time to explore this region because you can't see all the wonderful things there are to see all in a day or even just stopping off in a coach on your way through to Galway. It's the barren experience that you need. I'm particularly interested in the archaeology, the very ancient history, the geology, the flora and fauna and the whole landscape just paints a picture. Thank you Jane, who we'll be hearing again from later. So, why are we living mostly in Ireland now? I guess we wanted to stop pedalling, stop running round the wheel in the hamster cage. We wanted to feel the sun on our faces, hear the ocean waves, watch the amazing clouds glide by. Stop trying to make sense of it all. Hi Jane, can you tell us why you're going to talk about Pine Martins? Well, hello, Jane again here. I've been looking up information about Pine Martins, fascinating creatures. This is the description from Wikipedia. The European pine martin, Martis martis, known most commonly as the pine martin in Anglophone Europe and less commonly also known as piniton, baum martin or sweet martin, is an animal native to northern Europe belonging to the mustelid family, which also includes mink, otter, badger, wolverine and weasel. The Irish name is cat clan. It spends most of its time in trees. It's found mainly in deciduous and coniferous 
woodland, but has also adapted to scrubland. This amazing animal was almost extinct in Ireland, but it's been gradually returning since legal protection in 1976. I've been fascinated for some time, so I decided today to look up some more information from the Vincent Wildlife Trust. It tells me that they are solitary animals and that breeding occurs once a year and one or two kits are born in the spring. Their natural dens are in hollow trees, rabbit burrows, squirrel drays, tree roots and rock crevices. So ideal for this locality. And they eat berries, fruits, insects, frogs, birds and small animals and carrion. So although they're largely nocturnal, martins can be active during the day, especially in summer. Well, earlier on this year, I saw a pair of kits. I was walking along the lane from our cottage and I stopped abruptly and stood spellbound for several minutes watching the kits at play. They were chasing each other from the hedgerow onto the road and back again. They were weasel-like in appearance and small, but had a distinctive dark glossy coat, very fast and agile. Later, I wished I'd thought to record the event, but was so mesmerised that I didn't want to move in case they were frightened away. The local habitat around the Gowlorn River is ideal for the pine martins. There's plenty of ground cover and places to make their dens. However, much as I love these animals, I'm aware that they might want to share my living space. I found out this information from the same article and it gave this advice. Steps you can take to prevent martins moving in. Unless your home is martin proof, do not deliberately attract a pine martin into your garden by leaving food out for it. Oh dear, I've got a food waste bin for all my organic waste just outside the cottage. And of course, we leave uh, food for birds, but oh dear, what should we do about this? The same article tells me to keep my home in a good state of repair and remember that pine martins are excellent and agile climbers. So even small gaps in external timbers, they could squeeze through even gaps of about 45 millimetres in diameter and they'll choose small openings to create an access point. So any repairs, oh, I've got to get out there with the ladder and have a look. Always follow up unusual or one-off sounds you hear from your attic. Well, particularly during the months of November to February. And now here we are in November. And at night and early hours of the morning, yes, we've been hearing scuttling sounds and some very loud plodding across the roof of the attic. Or was it on the rooftop? Can't quite decide. But... We've got to make sure that we don't encourage an infestation because it really isn't a good idea. It could be sort of noisy. It could be, well, not very hygienic. They could be smelly. And if they're looking for a place to scout around, they're around here in November looking for a place to make a nest to bring up their young in the spring. So it's now that we've got to make sure that we just get ready if we don't want them in our attic, then from November, the little martins are looking for a place for possible denning sites during the next few months. 
although they may not take up proper residence until late spring. But beware because Martins are not normally overly frightened of humans, they are extremely curious and they will not always flee if you approach them in an attic for example. This makes them harder to scare away than any other species. So we have to act early to prevent a rodent infestation, particularly when rats and mice seek shelter in our attics in October and November. And martins are often attracted into roof spaces in pursuit of these rodents. So I'm about to do a thorough check of our property, so wish me luck. And maybe the next stage is to build a pine martin house for the little beggars to live in, not my house. And there is, I think, there's some information about building a little house for your pine martin, constructing a den martin, like a pine martin den box, on the website www.mammals-in-ireland.ie forward slash resources. And that's it for now. Why did we call our podcast Beyond the Pale? Well, because these podcasts are coming literally from Beyond the Pale, from North County Clare in the wild west of Ireland, about six miles from the Atlantic Ocean and what is now known as the Wild Atlantic Way, which stretches along the whole length of the west coast of Ireland, two and a half thousand kilometres of some of the most beautiful and breathtaking coastal scenery in the world. The Pale was an area of land centred on Dublin that became the base of English rule in Ireland. Anything beyond that area around Dublin was known as Beyond the Pale. So the west of Ireland where we are is definitely Beyond the Pale. A little bit of history now. The Norman invasion of Ireland, beginning in 1169, brought much of Ireland briefly under the theoretical control of the Plantagenet kings of England. That's people like Henry II. Across most of Ireland, the Normans increasingly assimilated into Irish culture after about 1300. They made alliances with neighbouring Gaelic lords, In the long periods when there was no large royal army in Ireland, the Norman lords, like their Gaelic neighbours in the provinces, acted as effectively independent rulers in their own areas. The lordship controlled by the English king shrank, and parts of its perimeter in counties Meath and Kildare were fenced or ditched, so it became known as the Pale, deriving from the Latin word palace, a stake or fence. The Pale generally consisted of fertile lowlands which were easier for the garrison to defend from ambush than hilly or wooded grounds. For reasons of trade and administration, a version of English became the official language in the Pale. Apparently its closest modern derivative is said to be the accent used by the natives of Fingal. The Pale had been reduced by the late 15th century to an area along the east coast of Ireland stretching from Dalkey south of Dublin to the garrison town of Dundalk. The inland boundary went around the earldom of Kildare north towards Kells. 
Now, some of you may have heard of the famous Book of Kells, an illuminated manuscript, which is believed to have been created around about 800 AD. So that's what the Pale means. And anything outside of it, like the West of Ireland, was way beyond the Pale. So we are way beyond the Pale in North County Clare. Hello, it's Jane here again. I'd like to talk a bit about stone walls, one of my favourite subjects. I've been doing a bit of research online and I found an article from thejournal.ie and it says, dry stone walls are part of our history and culture, but there are plans to replace them with fencing. I was alerted to this problem driving back from Galway to Lisnuvana. Signs were placed by the roadside to the effect, save our walls. Plans have recently come to light in which Galway County Council and Transport Infrastructure Ireland, TII, aim to replace thousands of kilometres of dry stone walls with post and wire fencing as part of a national road upgrade scheme. The first proposed stretch of wall to be replaced is along the N67 between Kinvara and Ballinderine, County Galway. The newly established Irish branch of the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings, SPAB, is firmly opposing and petitioning against the Galway County Council and TII plan. Triona Byrne's article makes really good reading. It's true what she says. Wherever you are in the west of Ireland, you are never more than 600 feet from a stone dry, a dry stone wall. The walls are beautiful and iconic, although I hate that word, and they reveal their age from their pattern of construction. The irregular stones are placed carefully with no mortar used. The most ancient walls in the landscape are the prehistoric boundary walls, the remains of which can be seen as low stone boundaries covered with grass. There are visible signs of these behind Pulnebron portal tomb. The oldest known dry stone walls in Ireland are actually at the Sedi, I don't know the pronunciation really, but the C-E-I-D-E fields of County Mayo built approximately 5,800 years ago. The earliest walls were built with upright stones just placed at a slight diagonal and later walls were more horizontal stone structures. The patterns are wonderful and a testament to expert building techniques shown in their survival to modern times. There is abundant fossil evidence in the limestone rock revealing the origins from back in the dawn of time before the tectonic plates moved the limestone layer of rock formed from tropical lagoons which underlies most of Ireland. In the Burren, this area of limestone rock is laid bare and rocks are abundant, which in the absence of trees is a good building material. The field boundaries are irregular too and stone enclosures for keeping cattle in are, are very visible. You can see buildings which, are utilized, which have utilised stone in a lasting way. For example, Kyaconnell Fort. The walls were massive, about 12 foot thick, built with two faces and a filling of stones in between. The landscape tells a story. It's the story of our past and is well worth preserving. Remember, progress is good, 
but not at the expense of heritage. You can improve roads for tourists to get here faster, but they need to see something when they arrive. And that's it for now. We're talking about what life is like for us recent English incomers who have had the barefaced cheek to come to the far west of rural Ireland. We're usually the only UK car number plate we see locally in North Clare, although there are one or two other Brits in this village who live here permanently and therefore they have Irish number plates on their car. I fancied having Irish number plates, so I investigated recently the possibility of buying a van to enable us to carry over a few bits of furniture from our Bijou residence in Greater Manchester and then convert it in a couple of years time to a camper van. But we found that it was impossible to get insurance here in Ireland for a small van such as a Volkswagen Transporter. Apparently to own and insure a small van in Ireland you have to be a farmer, a builder, a bricklayer, a plumber, electrician or have some other trade recognised by the Irish government and the Irish inland revenue and taxation. More outre and poncy professions such as web designer or antiques dealer are not recognised if you want to own a van in Ireland. Incidentally there are reputed to be a lot of Brits in West Cork as well as obviously Dublin. We will eventually be podcasting on many other subjects including Brexit and British politics. Other topics may include history, I love history, English history particularly, local Irish historical places of interest here around North County Clare and the Barham, such as ruined castles and churches, prehistoric antiquities around County Clare and the Barham, which are favoured by my lovely companion Jane, who has been talking about Pine Martins and various other subjects. There will be commentary on culture, society, education. Now, we're both retired teachers and have plenty to say on how state schools in England and the English education system has been completely screwed up by the interference of successive UK governments. Centralised state control of the curriculum in a way that would have delighted Joseph Goebbels, Reich Minister of Propaganda in Nazi Germany from 1933 to 1945. That's what we have now in England. The first thing you do according to how to run an authoritarian fascist state is to get hold of schools and universities, control them completely by such means as a national curriculum, punish and demoralise teachers by means of a government Gestapo of school inspectors, some of whom have never actually taught, called in England Ofsted, a name that brings shudders to the souls of every teacher in England. As regards the universities, what you do if you want to run an authoritarian government is introduce student tuition fees which will ensure that all university students are forever in debt to the state. And then make sure that you bully university lecturers, making their tenure insecure and telling them that their role is not to educate young minds in the widest sense, and neither is that the goal of school teachers, and certainly not to encourage critical thinking, the ability to think for yourself. Oh no, the role of both university dons and school teachers is to turn out passive drones of economic production 
who will be happy to work on zero-hour contracts and amuse themselves by staring at their smartphones all day or watching quiz shows, reality TV and drivel featuring so-called celebrities who have no discernible ability or talent to do anything except show what thoroughgoing idiots they are. We may also be commenting on religion, gender and contemporary genre fiction, particularly US crime and mystery fiction and Scandi fiction. And if you're really unlucky, I may read a few of my favourite poems by great poets like W.B. Yeats, T.S. Eliot, Ted Hughes, Dylan Thomas and Wilfred Owen. I may even inflict a bit of my own doggerel on my long-suffering listeners. So, we will be offering world-shattering insights on just about any subject that takes our interest. I know what you're thinking. That is way too wide a range of subjects for a podcast theme. I agree with you. So let's just see where these podcasts go and what happens, shall we? Come on a magical mystery tour through our many interests and preoccupations. Visit the more arcane, esoteric and obscure rooms of the rabbit warren of our minds. And not forgetting our dog, the incorrigible Roxy, the Border Terrier, who you may occasionally hear in the background barking, slurping from her water bowl, growling during her favourite game of tug and shake with one of her toys, scratching on the door to come in or whining pitifully to go out for some other obscure doggy reason. You can get details of our podcasts and blogs if you go to Beyond the Pale on clairewebs.com. That's Claire, C-L-A-R-E, webs, W-E-B-S dot com. Music was from the album by Schlanter. The title of the album is A Cup of Tea. The tracks were Fear Abata and The Banshee Gravel Walks The Old Copper Plate. And the other piece of music was Chancey Alcott To Ralu Ralu <laughs> To Ralu Ralu Ral An Irish lullaby from the album Antique Phonograph Music Programme. All music available on freemusicarchive.org. Thank you.